This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yesterday, Mr. McMillan and I were consulted by an individual that's interested in starting a radio program which we think would be provocative and useful. The proposal is to tackle environmental issues in a somewhat friendly way. A kind of environmentalist click and clack, the Tappet Brothers. We think there's no doubt a place for such an enterprise in the world of radio. And if it gets off the ground, uh, we will surely have him on to talk about it. In exploring the boundaries of how he might approach this, he asked, Well, on your show, do do you do a lot of political? I, of course, answered, Never. It's too depressing. And of course, dear listener, you know that's just not true. We can't resist things political, even though they frequently are depressing. And the very thought of that motivated me to start out today's program with some science. In fact, Mr. Whalen, why don't we get off planet Earth for a moment? We didn't talk too much last week about the so-called Event Horizon Telescope capturing a black hole located at the center of galaxy Messier 87. And I guess I'm struck by the fact that it's not really a photograph. It's a, it's a reconstructed photograph based on radio telescopic data. It's nevertheless quite an accomplishment, and it's really sort of mind-boggling to think back not so many decades ago when... People like Stephen Hawking were making bets of whether anybody would actually find a bona fide black hole out in space. They certainly suspected there was one at the center of our galaxy. But, uh, boy, this thing out in Messier 87, well, let's just say it is making Oz look very puny. We have, by all accounts, a black hole in the center of our Milky Way galaxy that is several million solar masses. This thing in Messier 87 is like 6 billion solar masses, making it a thousand times the bronze medalist black hole which we have. To be honest, I don't have too much to say about it, although it's kind of a cool image. I did have to laugh when I noticed in the San Francisco Chronicle, the daily briefing session starting out with this sentence. In a week when we saw a black hole and it looked an awful lot like PG&E's fire prevention strategy... (laughs) And speaking of one galaxy versus another, and how's that for a segue? According to New Scientist magazine, there are at least two intergalactic interlopers hurtling through the Milky Way galaxy at more than 700 kilometers per second. These stars are from outside our Milky Way. And we say that because they're moving so damn fast that the gravitational attraction of our galaxy will not keep them herded in. This information comes from the Gaia satellite, which has been charting stars for years, an effort to make the largest 3D map of our galaxy. For a subset of the 1.7 billion stars they're trying to to, uh, take the measure of, 7 million had how fast they're moving away from or toward the Earth measured. And I gather the speed limit for our galaxy is 450 kilometers per second, and Of the 165 that they located, they've calculated that 28 have a greater than 50% chance of escaping our galaxy's gravitational pull. 
A handful of these unbound stars have paths that are consistent with having been ejected from the galactic center, possibly from interacting with that aforementioned black hole that we have. It is thought that sometimes a binary star system, as it gets sucked into the black hole, may have one of the two components whipped off into space, which is maybe accounting for some of these rapidly moving stars, but half, on the basis of the reconstruction of their speeds and orbits, suggest that they originated outside our galaxy. And especially intriguing are those two extremely fast specimens with those velocities in excess of 700 kilometers per second. Now, as you are no doubt aware, dear listener, there's a certain balance between speed and remaining in orbit. When the Apollo astronauts uh, decided to go out to the moon back in the late 1960s, they had to put a little speed on to leave the Earth's orbit and head out. It's long been speculated that there probably would be, on occasion, objects coming into our solar system that are moving so fast that they clearly were not a part of our solar system. Which takes us to Bob Berman's column in Astronomy Magazine, talking about Muamua, which he describes as still a mystery. Quoting from Mr. Berman, former Radio Parallax guest, No object has ever been more deserving to be on this strange universe page, that's the title of his column, than one first seen in October 2017. That's when astronomers using Hawaii's Pan-STARRS telescope found an unprecedented cigar-shaped rock zooming through our solar system, glowing faintly at magnitude 20. The asteroid's high speed meant it wouldn't be captured by the sun, but in fact flung back out into interstellar space on some new heading. They did the math on this and traced its path back out into space and discovered that it was coming to us from the direction of the star Vega. Notes Bob Berman, that makes sense. That's just a few degrees away from the solar apex, which is the direction toward which our solar system is moving through the galaxy. Said Berman, you experience the most things crashing into you when you're headed in their direction, like when you drive through falling rain or snow. But Vega wasn't even in that location 600,000 years ago when, based on tracing its velocity backwards, Woomuamua would have been there. Instead, it probably came from one of four dwarf red stars. Astronomers calculate that it was in the vicinity of a bunch of such young stars 45 million years ago. It may have been expelled during its solar system's early formative years. Now, many years ago, when we first started doing this program, we talked about an article that was, I don't know, one of the science magazines, about how they'd captured, on a camera, I think up in Greenland, an object which the math indicated was moving so fast it must have come from interstellar space. In other words, it was a meteor from way out there. And apparently, this has been repeated of late. Some cameras have captured another object which the math suggests may have originated elsewhere. Thinking about it, people are now concluding that the Earth may contain quite a bit of interstellar rock. In fact, people who calculate such things, and God bless them for trying, have estimated there should be about 29 trillion Woomuamua-like objects per cubic light year in our galaxy. They're out there floating free after being thrown out of their orbits around their home stars. They are likely to be relatively small, dark, and fast-moving which they say is why we've probably only seen one so far. Here's another little bit from Astronomy Magazine, which I thought was curious, and I hope you will too. From their Ask Astro section, 
The question was posed, how do astronomers determine the sun's sibling stars and where the sun originated? The answer for the magazine was that stars form from collapsing gas clouds that fragment and condense into thousands of pieces, each containing a star and a planetary system. The result is an open star cluster, whose constituents will ultimately disperse into the Milky Way after a few hundred million years. If their original gas cloud was well mixed, as they say it is in most cases, all the stars in the cluster must have identical chemical compositions that reflect the mixtures of ingredients unique to their parent gas cloud. Astronomers can measure detailed abundances of chemical elements in stars using spectroscopy and thus can look for groups of stars with similar chemical composition to reconstruct former clusters. The cluster in which our sun formed dissolved billions of years ago, and the sun's siblings, thought to be about 10,000 of them, are now spread throughout the galaxy. Despite this difficulty, astronomers have identified a few solar sibling candidates that are within a few hundred light years of us using that chemical composition analysis. Once their present-day orbits around the galaxy are determined, astronomers think they can determine their place of origin by calculating the star's trajectories backwards 4.5 billion years. Seems like a pretty interesting thing to try and do. If I had one of these astronomers handy right now, I would ask him, is it possible that Alpha Centauri A, judged to be a near clone of our sun, is one of these sibling stars? I sure don't think so. But, uh, you know, I wonder. A lot of astronomers always thought it was odd that the very closest star system to us has a star in it that's very, very similar to our very own soul. All right, now let's come back to our own solar system, shall we? Turns out that out beyond Neptune, there's a minor red planet that rotates around our sun, which NASA says is in need of a name. Since its discovery in 2007, scientists have called the small planet 2007-OR10, which you have to admit is not very catchy. They're now reaching out to the public to vote on a new name. So you, dear listener, and all the rest of us can vote on one of three names listed by the scientists on their website. Are you ready? Here's your choice. Gong Gong, Hole, spelled H-O-L-L-E, and Vili, V-I-L-I. Of course, we are part of a public radio system on this, on this program. And we have legal restrictions on telling you what to go out and do. So we have to be careful about this, but I want to say from my part, my suggestion is you go out and vote for Gong Gong. Mr. Miller insists he's going to try and write in Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just hate to see him do that. Anyway, in case you're interested, 2007 OR10 sits out in our Kuiper Belt, something we talked about some weeks back with some degree of success and lack of success, I think. Scientists don't know its exact size, but they are calling it a minor planet, being it's 1,250 kilometers in diameter, mas o menos, making it smaller than the dwarf planets Pluto and Eris, but still one of the top 10 Kuiper Belt objects. It is big enough, presumably, to be round and thus be considered a dwarf planet. And if you're wondering how in the hell they picked these names, it turns out that Gong Gong is a chaos-causing Chinese water god that has red hair and a serpent's tail. Hole is a European winter goddess of fertility, rebirth, and women, with an ability to make snow just by shaking out her bed. And finally, Vili is the Norse god, 
that together with his brothers defeated the frost giant Ymir and used his body to create the universe. We look forward to following the democratic process on this. And you know, once again on this program, we have to give an attaboy to at least one of the three Garys, America's great comedic Garys. We're referring to Larson, Shandling, and Trudeau. I had to laugh at the Sunday Chronicle, wherein Doonesbury makes its uh, weekly appearance, to note a tweet by blowhard reporter Roland B. Headley Jr., who proposed in his tweet that if the $5.6 billion border wall becomes a reality, the Sinaloa cartel is reportedly prepared to counter by investing in a new tunnel. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yeah, whatever happened to that? It is surely one of the dumbest things any candidate for president ever said, and yet we're still talking about it. Except, you know, the Mexico angle is falling by the wayside. Trump doesn't want, well, Trump may want Mexico to pay for it, but Mexico more or less said, tu puedes besarme culo, or something the equivalent of kiss my fanny. So the burden has apparently fallen upon the American taxpayer. Well, why haven't Trump's supporters noticed this bait and switch? And you see, doggone it, we started out with science, and here we are in the middle of Trump. So our only solution at this point, I think, is to cut to something that should lift the mood. The good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for capitalism. After class warrior Senator Bernie Sanders admitted via his soon-to-be-released tax returns that, well, they will show that he's in fact a millionaire who owns three houses. Said Sanders, if you write a best-selling book, you can be a millionaire too. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for testing out body armor with the word that two Arkansas men escaped serious injury after taking turns shooting each other while wearing a bulletproof vest. Police in Rogers, Arkansas, note that Charles Eugene Ferris and Christopher Hicks allegedly decided to test their body armor after a day of drinking. First, Hicks shot Ferris once in the chest with a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle. Then, angered by the pain, Ferris pumped the clip's remaining five rounds into his neighbor's back. Both men reportedly now face charges and the ire of their neighbors. Said one, there has to be something done about this. I have three kids. And it surely had to be an ugly week last week for the Space Burger with the news that an Englishman launched a Big Mac hamburger 24 miles into the stratosphere using a weather balloon, a feat accomplished with the aid of four canisters of helium, a GoPro camera, a polystyrene box, and superglue, along with a GPS tracker. After the balloon popped up in the stratosphere and the burger floated back down to space, it was recovered. 
said the space pioneer who accomplished this after taking a bite. It's been outside, so it's a bit crumbly. Overall, he described the taste as not nice. We would note in closing that it was both a bad and ugly week last week for impatient groundskeeping with the news that parents and players in Ridgefield, Connecticut tried to dry a wet high school baseball field before a game by dousing it with gasoline and setting it on fire. After this, a hazardous waste firm had to dig up six inches of gas-contaminated dirt after the stunt, which a town official said was not a very good idea. My head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. And lastly, it was both, we would say, a bad and ugly week for statesmanship with the news that Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte used a campaign rally to boast over and over of being, quote, highly equipped, unquote, with a large penis, and furthermore describing it in some detail. All right, let's segue at this point into some statistics, all of which in this case come from The Week. Let's start with this one. A reprint from USA Today, noting that at least 10,000 bills submitted in state legislatures and Congress over the past eight years were almost entirely copied from so-called model legislation drafted by industry groups and other special interests. More than 2,100 of those bills eventually became law, including the Asbestos Transparency Act, which makes it harder for victims of asbestos-related diseases to claim compensation. And according to the Washington Post, President Trump's penchant for making false or misleading statements is accelerating. Trump averaged nearly 5.9 false or misleading claims a day in his first year in office, as we reported on this program. But he's hit nearly 16.5 a day in his second year. And so far, in 2019, he's averaging 22 false or misleading claims a day, every day. And by the way, the notion that wind farms cause cancer is apparently unique to our chief executive. Speaking of the Trump administration, it turns out it has killed a four-month-old deal between Major League Baseball and its Cuban equivalent that would have let Cuban athletes play in the U.S. without having to defect. Currently, Cuban players hoping to play in Major League Baseball have to pay criminal gangs to smuggle them to the U.S. and then end up giving a big chunk of their signing bonuses to these traffickers. You know, Trump may claim that Latin America isn't sending us its best people, but that's Pretty tough to say about professional ballplayers. And under the heading of, you're the terrorist, we have the fact that Iran has reacted angrily last week after the Trump administration declared the regime's powerful Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a foreign terrorist organization. This marks the first time the U.S. has hit part of another country's military with that designation, which allows Washington to apply sweeping economic and travel sanctions to the IRGC. You know, you just hate to see a cancellation of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' California wildflower tour. But it looks like they're stuck back in Tehran. Anyway, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani called the U.S., the leader of world terrorism, and declared U.S. Central Command a state sponsor of terror. And from the gossip file, we have news that apparently Queen Elizabeth II is not happy that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle 
intend to raise their first child, who's due any day now, as a vegan. Markle, a self-described hippie chick, plans to have an all-natural birth, designed a gender-neutral nursery, and wants the baby raised on a plant-based diet. A source has told Woman's Day that the Queen won't have it. Megan seems to have little regard for royal traditions, but bringing up the baby as a vegan simply won't be tolerated. You know, for our part here at Radio Parallax, we want to go to bat for Prince Harry because he's evidently fanned an international debate over video games with a call to ban the game Fortnite. This is according to the BBC.com. The Duke of Sussex said last week that he thought the free-to-play online game, which has more than 200 million players worldwide, was created to addict. An addiction to keep you in front of the computer for as long as possible. Prince Harry suggested that the game's designers have been irresponsible. Weighing in on this issue, the Boston Globe said, The evidence suggests that today's games are harder to stop playing. Game makers have taken a lesson from slot machine designers in developing ever more sophisticated psychological manipulations. Fortnite, in which 100 competitors fight each other on a virtual battlefield, continuously loops with a variable reward mechanism to which the developing brain of young adults seem especially vulnerable. I don't think there's too much doubt that some of the great minds of psychology have been employed by the tech industry, as they've been previously employed by the gaming industry, to addict us to their products. The April 13th edition of The Economist weighs in on this issue, noting that casinos want to make slot machines more attractive to millennials. And to make the machines more attractive to a new generation of gamblers who are also cooler toward table games where they reportedly fear-looking gauche in front of a supercilious croupier. I love the way they write in The Economist. Casinos are looking at machines that resemble the video games millennials favor. Now there's no doubt that casinos make the bulk of their earnings from the one-armed bandit. Slot machines. They rely on dumb luck. Millennials aren't too keen on, the, on this concept of just playing something that's dumb luck. They would like to test their skill. So the gambling authorities are considering that their skill aversion posture could lose an awful lot of revenues. Although combining slots, relying on dumb luck, and video games, which require skill, does present a number of challenges for their makers and for the casinos. It's noted that because skill-based games require concentration, players take longer than the six or seven seconds typical of traditional one-armed bandits to place successive bets. Stable revenues from newfangled slots suggest that bettors are wagering higher sums or occupying the machines for longer. Either way, it's good news for the casinos. An article that's going to appear in Topic.com by Bryce Covert ponders the fact that... uh, Gambling is an addiction that states encourage. Covert notes that lotteries depend upon the poor and gambling addicts for most of their revenues. 44 states still actively promote them as the fastest way to realize the American dream. Article cites a 2017 University of Massachusetts study which found that nearly two-thirds of Massachusetts adults play the lottery in a typical year. But for people with gambling addictions, the numbers are much higher. About 95% of problem gamblers play it. 
And when you know it, these frequent, sometimes compulsive players are where the real state money lies. The casual player might jump in when the Powerball is big, but it is the core players, or only about 10 to 15% of all people who play the lottery, who account for 80% of sales. Noted Bryce Covert, this perverse incentive for states to maximize gambling profits is the opposite of what people expect from their government, which is tasked, at least in part, with protecting public health and discouraging addiction. Yet, states are generally making the problems worse, not better. And helping this process are things like scratch-off games, which offer lottery addicts instant gratification. Traditional lottery games involve long intervals between the time people place bets and when they discover whether or not they've won. The sad thing is, lotteries aren't generating that much money for the states. Across all states and localities, lotteries brought in $17.7 billion back in 2015, according to analysis by an urban Brookings researcher, which sounds like a lot of money. But in 2017, states' total revenues came to over $2.5 trillion. Meanwhile, Reams Research has found that the poorest Americans spend the biggest share of their incomes on the lottery. That includes the industry's own internal research. Research by the Business School of Carnegie Mellon found that most of these players aren't doing it for fun, but out of a desire to improve their finances. The higher the poverty rate, the higher the lottery sales. That's a relationship that doesn't exist for other forms of entertainment, such as movie tickets. And states spend next to nothing on actually helping addicts. Anyway, it is a kind of sordid and sad tale, isn't it? But does prompt me to think of that great Rodney Dangerfield line. I signed up for Gamblers Anonymous. They gave me three to one, I wouldn't make it. You got to know when to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the deal ends done. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and we are in the process of taking a short break, after which we will have plenty more, so stick around. There's knowing what to throw away, knowing what to keep, cause every hand's a winner, and every hand's a loser, and the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. And when he finished speaking, he turned back the window crushed out a cigarette faded off to sleep and somewhere in the darkness the gambler he broke even but in his final words I found an ace that I could keep you got to know when to hold 